Well, if you have your Bible, Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 2 is where we're going to be this morning, and that is page 384 in the church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. And as always, when when we're through this morning, if you have a question about Christ the Bible or what you've heard, I will happily do my best to try to answer those questions for you. Psalm 2 is an incredibly important psalm. In fact, it... To be real honest with you, it left me in angst all week. So let's, let's hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So just by way of curiosity of Psalm 2, how many of you by just raising your hands have ever actually heard a sermon from Psalm 2? You just raise your hand. Okay, so just, just kind of look around. Nobody raised their hand. Let's bow together and let's pray and seek the help that we so desperately need. The Lord is King, who then shall dare, resist His will, distrust His care, or murmur at His decrees, or doubt His royal promises. Father, You are King. You have no beginning, no end. You are unchanging in the passing of time. You know everything and You do everything perfectly. Who is like You? Father, your wisdom, unsearchable, your paths beyond tracing out, who has known your mind, who's ever been your counselor, who can question any of your word, and what is man and woman that you're mindful of them. So we would ask, Father, that you would come to our aid now, make Psalm 2 alive in us, make us able to sit in it, penetrating even the hard places of our existence where we do war with you too often in our disobedience. Take away any small thoughts of you, take away any false or lesser ideas of you that we may have. And may you settle us down in the great assurance that Jesus is King and He will be obeyed and He will keep His promises so that we would know that there is no concern of ours that is too petty for Him, no need of ours too great that that He cannot with one little word uh, meet them. Father, make Psalm 2 alive in us this morning for Jesus' sake and for His glory we ask these things. Amen. So our brief, this, this whole summer is spending the summer in the Psalms. Last week's sermon was Psalm 1, and I invite you to hear it on our website if you have not uh, listened to it, because there were many things that we learned, and one of which is something that was awfully important, is the fact that sometimes we come to the Bible and make the mistake of only turning to the New Testament in order to meet Jesus Christ. 
However, in actual fact, as we discovered, Christ is throughout not only the whole Bible, that, but Christ is, in fact, front and center in the psalm. So here we are meeting the anointed one, verse 2, and that word translated in Hebrew is the word Messiah. So the anointed one is none other than the Messiah. And so it's important that we understand this. It's also important that we understand that the historical context of this psalm may very well be a kind of coronation psalm for the implementing of Israel's new king. However, there was no king in the Old Testament that ever fulfilled all of Psalm 2. Not King David, not King Solomon, Uzziah, Josiah, and so on. And I say that because there are some who say that this psalm isn't about Jesus Christ. It's actually about ceremony. But again, in actual fact, when you read your Old Testament, you will not find these words any, in any coordination of an Old Testament king. And if you le- read secondary history, you will not find these words written down anywhere of any coordination of, of any king in Israel or Judah. And so whatever parallels there may be, these things are, are a mere shadow of that which was to come. So that when you read the 18 or so quotes from Psalms in your New Testament, uh, many of them in the Gospels, but at least two of them are in the book of Revelation describing Jesus Christ, then it helps you to know that this Psalm goes way beyond David, goes way beyond any earthly king, that this Psalm is about the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's no mystery now about who the anointed one is in verse 2. Do you see that there if your Bible's open? Or verse 6, who the king is. Or in verse 7, who the son is. So, as we come to Psalm 2, with all that authoritative language, if we're prepared to be honest, we could certainly say what John Stott said in one of his chapters in the book, Life in Christ, that nobody really likes the idea of being under someone else. I mean, be honest. Nobody really likes the idea of consistently being under some kind of authority, having, having someone rule over them. And if you doubt that, just ask yourself the question, how easy is it for you to take orders? How easy is it for you to take assessments or to be told, no, you can't, by another human? And not to be unkind, but to be honest, because the, ta- the times that we live in demand this kind of honesty, at this point in history in the West, so many are chasing the day when you can come to that place where you no longer are tied down by the restraints and the obligations and the authority of the world. A day that you can come to where no one will be able to tell you what to do or when to do it. A day when you essentially can ignore your alarm clocks. Not only this, but the idea of a well-mannered, respectful, civilized, conscience of other, others' feelings and needs polite, obedient, tranquil young boy or girl is looked on by some not as good, but as squirrely. Or maybe there's something happening in the home that is stifling the child or even flat out wrong. All the while, the the ill-mannered, uncivilized, not conscious of others' feelings and needs, the disobedient will say, wild child is the way to go because the child needs to express themselves no matter who it may affect or who it may offend. My sister has a friend who has a nanny, and they tell the nanny that they can never say no to the child no matter what. And that's the kind of world that we exist in. So this idea of being at odds with being under someone, especially in the case of religion, goes like this. How can a person submit to authority 
of any kind and remain authentically human. That's the line that they go on. How can they keep their human dignity if they have to obey someone else? So they say humanity should be able to express themselves even at the expense of others and what they want or what they think or what they like is legitimate. So words like submission, subjection, subservience, servant or underling or no you can't convey an idea that is really, really unpleasant to most people. And it's not only now. If you study ancient history, Athens, Greece, Rome, you'll find that these words that we just read and those ideas were frowned on. Which is why Paul said in Corinthians, Greek demand wisdom, a wisdom that has no place for a king who rules over them, who bleeds on a cross. A king that we will serve. So who wants to be under anyone? And we're not speaking here of tyranny. But, but God's authority. The Bible's view on tyranny is very clear. It destroys freedom. But the Bible's view on God's authority over His people is that it delivers and actually guarantees freedom by constraining unruly, wrong behavior. Isn't that what Jesus said? Jesus said, this is the definition of love. If you obey me, if you let my moral constraints constrain you, if you let my mission be your cause then that's love. Someone once called the Ten Commandments the pathway to freedom. And I absolutely agree. And so does Catherine Lee Bates in principle. Do you know who Catherine Lee Bates is? She wrote the, the hymn or the song America the Beautiful. Listen to line two. Because we used to sing this a long time ago. America, America, God mend thine every flaw. Confirm thy soul in self control thy liberty in law thy liberty in yes and no and of course laws implies authority and authority implies leadership and leadership implies one who enforces the law or creates the law and so it's no surprise that humanity its kings and its people squirm at this idea of being ruled least of all ruled by Christ Remember Jesus' parable in Luke 19? We will not have this man rule over us. We will not have this man rule over us. And that's what I say every time I sin. I will not have this man rule over me. And you don't have to be a genius to understand this. Natural man, the religious moral man, abhors the authority of Jesus Christ. If you want to get people united, then say Jesus is the only way to God. So, so here in Psalm 2... Beloved, is a psalm which, which will strengthen your worldview, it will give clarity to history, and it will give you the big picture, and it will teach you and I ultimate reality. Ultimate and current reality. Verse 12, do you see it there? Kiss the son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead you to destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Now that doesn't play well with the modern ear. I mean, frankly, it offends. This psalm, Psalm 2, is not this kind of wishy-washy, touchy-feely, Jesus is only there to do what I like, nominal cultural Christianity. And yet, here is the Word of God. The Word of God boldly stating that there's only one king whose kingdom will never fail and whose power will never wane and whose authority will be yielded to. And so Psalm 2 asks every one of us, what will be our part in the story? 
What will be our place in the story? What part of this reality are you and I are living in? Are you under the Lord and His anointed one? Or are you fighting the Lord and His anointed one? Because there's no neutrality here. No one can sit this one out. Inaction in the Bible means rebellion. So it's no wonder that scholars tell us that Psalm 1 and 2 set the stage for the whole of, of the Bible. In fact, in older manuscripts, there's no division between Psalm 1 and 2. There's, there's 149 Psalms. Psalm 1 and 2 are, are collided together. So Psalm 1, blessed is the one who. Psalm 2, blessed are all who. Psalm 1, individual. Psalm 2, personal or communal. Psalm 1 says, do you, not, do you know where you're headed? Psalm 2 says, because this is where all of history is heading. And again, Psalm 2 asks the question, will you be ruled or will you be unruly? Will you bow to the king or will you establish your own little kingdom? Because everyone must know that this kingdom, this world has been promised to the Messiah. I mean, think that out. It's been promised to the anointed one and God has enthroned his king. It's all His. It's all His. So, so think, just like a good child would want the very, very best for their father, the good Christian child would want the very best for their father in heaven. And that takes us to our first point, why and what. And these are not so much questions as a fascination. This is, verse 1 is, or verse one is are you kidding me? Why do the nations, and by the way, the word for nations is actually an agricultural word. It means herds, as in herds of cattle. So, 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 so the, the, the epistemology of the word is not very flattering. The herds, why do the herds rage? Or the NIV says, why do they conspire? Nations rage, verse 1b, people plot in vain. Why, why is there such noisy hostility towards, verse 2, the Lord and his anointed one? In other words, why do people get so fired up about Jesus? What makes people so hostile about Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? But actually, here's a better question. What is it about people, what is it about rulers and kings that think that they can take on Jesus and actually win? I think that's a better question. Okay, but let's try to answer both of them. What is it about Jesus? You see there in verse 2b that the kings of the earth take their stand and gather are literally... They, they plant their feet down. So, so what they're doing here is they're making war with God in the very soil that God gave them. And then they're thinking and planning and plotting, and they have their huge committee meetings using the intellect that God gave them to be able to say no to God's authority and no to his decrees and no to his commands and no to his grace and therefore no to his son. Why is that? What is it about Jesus Christ that makes people, kings, humanity, so, so angry and, 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 and think that they can take them on and win. Every earthly king, every person has a temporary eminence. In other words, the clock is ticking, yet they war against the eternal eminence of God and his anointed son. The son represents the father, the kings of the earth represent rebel humanity, the peoples, verse 1b. The people want license to live as they choose instead of liberty to live as God has said. The Son obeys the Father. The kings of the earth make war and they plan war against the Father and the Son. And the psalmist makes it clear. So, so the pantheists and the pluralists and, and the mere moralists and the rulers and peoples of the earth need to take notice. 
Those of us who are just guided by personal convictions, take notice. Those who refuse to submit to the authority of the Son, Jesus Christ, actually makes war with God. Okay, but again, what is it about Jesus that makes people and rulers and humanity think that they can take him on and win? So is it sin? Well, yeah, kind of, yeah. Sin is a rejection of God's rule in favor of our own will. That's foolishness whether we're Christian or not. Could we say that the evil one is behind this plot? We could say, yeah, 2 Corinthians 4, the the evil one blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they can't see Christ in in his kingship and his saving power. However, what makes kings and peoples think that they can take on Christ and win? Is it not the humility of Jesus Christ? The lowliness of Christ? The willingness of Christ, this is Philippians 2.7, to empty himself and make himself nothing, taking on the very, uh, the very nature of a, an underling, a servant. I mean, not that we would fight, but if we were going to fight with someone and think we can win, wouldn't we choose the, the most pitiful looking person? I would. So as humanity turns their back on Christ and his anointed, or the Lord and his anointed one, the Lord and his anointed one, They do not turn their back on humanity. So I think it's that. The foolish arrogance of human intellect that refuses to begin with God. They size Jesus Christ up in all his humility and see him as nothing. They see him as a slave, as a crutch for the unstable and the fearful people of the world. They see him as a bloody, beaten pulp of a man hanging on a cross. They see him as weak and pathetic. And it's at that point that you have the recipe of verse 3. Do you see it there in your Bibles? They finally say, let us break their chains and let us throw off their shackles because they think they can. My colleagues and I are working through a book in our elder meetings and the, the book is Spiritual Leadership. And one of the early lessons of the book is that when God chooses leaders, He's not looking for Mr. Fantastic. He's not looking for Mr. Powerful, full of Himself and sure of Himself. God has a preference for the lowly. God has a preference for the weak. And no one has gone lower than the Son. And now the Son who holds the highest place because the Son took the lowest state. So then the psalmist asked the whole world, every nation, communist, capitalist, first world, third world, rich or poor, why are you raging against God? Why are you raging against His anointed Son? Why the fight? David Turner, he answers this a bit by saying, there is nothing imprecise about who the rebellion is against. It is against the Lord and His Messiah. It is Jesus that is their problem. And here in the very beginning of the Psalter is the very heart of the human problem. There is in the very being of every individual a deeply embedded, stubborn refusal of God's authority in Jesus Christ. True? A deeply embedded, stubborn refusal of God's authority in Jesus Christ. So if you want a one-word definition of sin, it's there in verse 2, against. That's what sin is, against. Against the Lord and against His anointed. We, we all are plotters. We are all rebels who by nature say no to God. I read that this morning in Ephesians 2. And so the psalmist says, why do you rage at God and His, his Messiah? What makes you think you can take Him on and win? 
And again, this is not just an individual issue. It touches politics and finance and law and universities and culture, and it even touches churches. Michael Wilcox, this is what he writes. There is scarcely a commercial or intellectual or cultural interest anywhere in the world which would not resist Christ's claims on it. True. People aren't getting together and asking the first question, what does Jesus Christ say about this? No. So those chains and shackles in verse 3, which should wear like beautiful jewelry, right? The law, Romans 14, the law is love. Those, those shackles are trying to be thrown off by kings and by politicians and world leaders and opinion formers and cultural sh- uh, shapers and nominal cultural churchgoer and the orthodox Jew and the mystic and the moralist and the vision seekers and the voice hearers and the mild Muslim or Mormon. And they all say with either a shout or, or a whisper because it doesn't matter when you say no to God and no is still a no. They all say, we want our freedom. We want to believe what we like and behave the way we want and still feel great about ourselves. And the Bible calls that bondage. And loved ones, for those of us who are Christians, Christ did not set his people free to do what we like. Rather, he set us free to do what was impossible before and live unselfishly for him and for others and follow his commands in an attitude of repentance and humility. He set us free so that we can make so much of Jesus because there's so much to be made of him. Jesus does not want fans. He wants followers. So here in this scene, we see a a very settled point. There are no neutrals here. There's no non-combatants here. You and I are living on the wrong side of the story if Jesus Christ is not our king. That takes us to our second point, tease and terrified. You see it there in verses, verses 4 to 6, and here we see God's reaction to this silly little scene of a mere man, a woman, a king, collecting themselves to try to throw off the moral and theological restraints of Jesus Christ. Verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs, and he scoffs at them. And th- this isn't, uh, oh gosh, aren't they so cute kind of laugh. This is a teasing laugh. That's the sense of the word there, scoff, in verse 4b. The Lord heckles them. He taunts them. He teases them. Now I want you to see this. So we see a God that is not in any way, way at all phased by man's rebellion. He's not rethinking his plan because rebels are rebelling. I mean, when you see billions of people who oppose Jesus Christ, that might set us back a bit. But it doesn't set back God at all. This is not a formidable force. This is a despicable force. This is God saying, verse 4a, really? Do you really want to do this? I was thinking about this. This would be the same thing on a much smaller level if, if, if the welterweight champion of the world, uh, Floyd Merriweather Jr., if he was in the ring and all of a sudden I was feeling my oats and I ran into the ring, you know, and disrobed. Mr. Merriweather would look at me, and after he got through laughing, he would say, really? Do you really want to do this? You, you want to take me on? Okay, I've got a few seconds, because a few seconds is all it's going to take. He laughs because of the arrogance of me thinking that I could step in the ring with him and be okay. That's the picture that God is giving. It's an anthropomorphic picture. It gives a human quality to God. God's laughing. God's saying, are you kidding me? I I made these guys. (laughs) 
I, I'd keep these guys going. I could go like that, and they would all fall down. And they think they can take me on. They think that they can take their stand. They, they think that they can, can, can say no to me forever. Don't they know that kings and kingdoms tremble at my voice? And so the teasing turns to terror. You see it there, verse 5. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountains. So, so, so think this out. This is similar to Pilate. Go ahead and crucify Christ. Don't you know, Jesus, I have power in my hand? God scoffs at them. Because God knew that Jesus is coming back and he's going to be dressed to the nines in all his wonderful, beautiful splendor. Do you remember that song? It was way back in the 80s. It said the line, Go ahead, drive the nails in my hands, laugh at me where you stand. Go ahead and say it isn't me. The day will come when you will see, because I'll rise again. There's no power on earth that can tie me down. That's what Jesus is saying. Charles Spurgeon once told his congregation that in the late 3rd and early 4th century, the Roman emperor Diocletian he had this coin produced which had the inscription, the name of Christianity be expired. And so history records that Diocletian gave him the task of terminating the name of Christ and the name of Christianity and the whole of the Roman Republic. And so he persecuted Christians with a vengeance. And he had 30 officials and governors. These people were just outstanding, if you would, at killing Christians. But this is what history records about these 30 people. Every one of these 30 high officials and governors, every one of them had untimely, horrible, painful deaths, either by disease, by family members, by cruelty, or, or just, just dropping dead, or suicide, or in battle. And among these was a gentleman named Julian the Apostate. And Spurgeon says, in the day of his prosperity... He, he pointed a dagger to heaven. This is what he said. I defy the Son of God, whom he called the Galilean. He never would call Jesus Christ. He would call him the Galilean. But as providence would have it, he, he was wounded in battle. He, he knows his life is about ready to end. The time for men and women to make much of themselves will always come to an end. And so he gathers up his clotted blood. He throws it in the air. And this is what he shouts. You have conquered me, oh you Galilean. Now ask yourself the question, what is going on there? This is a common battle. He, was die he dies by the wound of someone else. Why is he angry on the battlefield at Jesus Christ? Verse 12. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry with you, and you be destroyed in your way. Loved ones, the Bible makes it very clear. Everyone knows there's a God. And Julian, having killed so many Christians, heard that there was a Son of God who offered Himself to Him. And this, this Jesus is King and He's Savior. And so Julian the Apostate would not be ruled by this King of Kings. The good news of the Gospel was bad news to him. Why was it why was, why was this foolishness to Julian? Well, you know your Bible. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Point number three. Number one, why and what? Two, tease and terrify. Number three, proclaim and reign. 
And here God proclaims His absolute decree. This is what God says. Verse 7. This is a settled matter. He, God, said to me, the Son, You are my Son. Today I have become your Father. And so it's very true that, that the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God calls King David His Son and Israel His Sons. But they are called by way of adoption and not by way of eternal truth. And this is what I mean. There was never a time when Christ was not. And there was never a time when Christ was not the second person of the Trinity as God's Son. But there was a time when Christ was not known to the world as God's Son. So that's the line, verse 7b. Today, I, God, have become your Father. And what you have here is God's redemptive history unfolding. So in other words, what was proclaimed in the Old Testament is now explained in the New. So where was it explained? Well, in the inauguration of the earthly ministry of Jesus at his baptism. What happened? Three Gospels tell us when Jesus went under under and he came up, this is what happened. The voice of heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And at that point, the crowds knew this is God's son. Not only that, but at the transfiguration, the same thing happens with a little caveat. This is my son whom I love and I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So are you with me? The baptism of Jesus, God makes a declaration. Jesus is my son. Transfiguration, Jesus is my son. At the resurrection, Paul preaches Acts 13.33. He quotes directly from Psalm 2.7 and he tells the crowd, this is what God has said. You are my son. Today I've become your father. And he tells them now so that the whole world will know that which it never knew before. Jesus is God's son. Jesus and the father are one. Listen to him. And Paul does the same thing in Romans 1. Jesus was declared in power to be the son of God by the resurrection of the dead. Now do you understand that? That's why these psalms are so important. And so that which is proclaimed is now part of the reign. That's verse 8. The nations belong to Jesus. So you see what Jesus is told to do? God tells Jesus, verse 8, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. Now what does that mean? Well, it means at least this. Listen very, very carefully. The intercession of Jesus Christ, the asking of Jesus of the Father to give him the nations is quite literally the only hope for the world. Now, do you understand how dramatic that is? The intercession of Jesus, asking the Father, Father, give me the nations, is the only hope for the world. If Jesus does not pray that prayer, we're done. Now, that should make you feel really small and really wonderful. Do you understand what I mean? Wonderful because the prayer is being answered. Small because, it's, you know, we're kind of the insignificant part of that whole equation. Jesus is praying to God so that the world can be saved. Revelation 7. The, the picture there that gets me out of bed most every morning. All the nations, the great multitude of people standing before the throne, worshiping the Lamb, worshiping the Son. That's what Jesus was praying for. Finally, we got the why and the what. Why do nations rage or conspire? What is it about Jesus that makes the nations think they can take him on and win? The tease and terrified, who do you think you are? And the terror of God, this is who I am. The proclaiming, this is my son. The reigning, this is what my son will do. 
Finally, the warning and the worshiping, verses 9 through 12. This is a shock for many. This is the Jesus of the Bible. The enemies of Christ, the enemies of God will be dashed to pieces like pottery. Yes, it is. That's a very uncomfortable image of Jesus. We understand that, but it is a true image of Jesus. Christ's throne holds terror for those who would resist him. So it's no wonder that many people in our age, what, what do they try to do? They want to change God. and He's just a life force. That's all he is. This God, is. God is the way I want God to be. This is the God of my imagination. This God is not moral, my morality, no exactness. No, no, we're going to just feel our way through this. They want a tamed God who you can switch off and switch on when you want, but won't bother us. J.I. Packer says, all the thrills of religion, but none of the cost. So the warning in verse 10, which begins with those in authority, but really is for all of us, because if we're honest, we all like to play king or queen. The psalmist says, okay, verse 10, be wise. Think. Wise people listen to warnings. Foolish people don't listen to warnings. Serve the Lord with fear. Right? In every season of your life, serve the Lord with fear. Verse 11b, rejoice but watch yourself. Don't come loosey-goosey into my presence. Rejoice with trembling. You're not that great. And the final line then says, blessed are those who take refuge in him, which makes so sense. Right? We're all rebels. We're all rebels against the king of kings. So we can run to the king, cry out for mercy from the king, so that the king can be our refuge, so that we can escape the wrath of God, so that we can never be put to shame, or we won't. But we've been warned. Kiss the sun, lest the sun be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. Because his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are the ones who take refuge in him. Just think it out. Let's bow together and pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your mercy and for your mighty power and for your great love. And we do thank you that Jesus is king. And we pray that we would live as loyal subjects to our King, whatever the cost. And now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours both now and forevermore. Amen.